From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. In November 2019, a 19-year-old Walpuri man, Kumanjai Walker, was killed by a Northern Territory police constable, Zachary Rolfe. It happened during an attempted arrest in the remote community of Yundamu. Rolf shot Walker three times. Walker died shortly after. Rolf was charged with murder. His trial has been playing out in the Darwin Supreme Court, and last week, a verdict was handed down. Rolf was found not guilty. Today, writer and contributor to The Monthly, Anna Crean, on the acquittal of Zachary Rolf and what this case reveals about the state of policing in Australia. It's Thursday, March 17. Anna, last week you were there in the courthouse in Darwin as a verdict was handed down in the trial of Zachary Rolfe. Can you tell me what that moment was like? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was pretty nerve-wracking, I think, for as all verdicts are nerve-wracking. Basically, the jury deliberated for half a day and then went home and then everyone reconvened the next morning. And, you know, as as you do, the journalists all waited outside the court door, basically watching a kettle boil, wondering when the moment was going to come. And then finally you get a message saying the jury is about to deliver their verdict. Uh, Zachary Rolfe sat in the dock. He hadn't actually sat in the dock the entire trial, unlike most accused. And then the jury came out and they said not guilty to the first charge of murder, not guilty to the alternative charges of manslaughter and of a violent act causing death. Obviously, the jury in a trial don't actually give their reasoning for how they came to the decision that they did. So I think it might help to hear about what the defence actually argued in this case over the past five weeks or so and what therefore might have influenced the jury's decision. So would you mind just outlining the defence's case? Yeah, sure. So the defence was arguing, which is pretty much I mean, it's the same defence that is argued the world over when it comes to police officers, that what Zachary Rolfe did was he defended himself and he defended the life of his police partner. They presented Zachary Rolfe as a man who serves his community, as an outstanding officer, an upstanding officer, and that what he'd done was almost heroic in the sense that he had said that he was defending himself and was saving the life of his police partner. Mm. And we know that Zachary Rolfe shot his gun three times that night and there was some agreement between the the prosecution and defence that that first shot that he fired was necessary, but it was the next two shots that really seemed to be the crux of this and it seemed like the prosecution their difficulty was in trying to argue that those two shots were not necessary and that they did, in fact, constitute murder. Yeah, I mean, it was such a difficult case for the prosecution to uh, implement in the sense that what they've been doing was trying to build this case of intent of creating a mindset of Zachary Rolfe that he'd become somewhat obsessed with arresting Kumanjai Walker that he had watched previous footage of Kumanjai Walker brandishing an axe to other policemen and he'd watched it 
at least 30 times, um, potentially more. And so they're creating this mindset of intent to hunt down Kumanjai Walker and cause him harm. But then they have this, this huge hiccup in the middle of that narrative of, of the first gunshot, which is legal, which is justified. And um, then they sort of have to work, have to work around that. And I mean, what the prosecution was saying was that you can't view that incident as a single incident, that there was two phases to that incident. Uh, The first shot was fired when Zachary Rolfe was indeed being attacked and they were standing up. But the second two shots, the prosecution was arguing, was when Kumanjai Walker was on the mattress, lying on his side, already with one gunshot in his torso, with Zachary Rolfe's police partner, Adam Ebel, effectively restraining him. So the prosecution was arguing there's no need to then move towards him and fire two more shots into Kumanjai Walker's side. Right, okay. And so it wasn't long after that that Kumanjai Walker died from those injuries. But what do we actually know about his life, Anna? Was there much said about who Kumanjai Walker was during this trial? We didn't learn much during the trial about Kumanjai Walker's life. It's quite hard to get a linear sense of his life, which is why it's just, it's almost fascinating in a macabre way to line up these two men and just show how different their lives were and are. Kumanjai Walker, his mother was a petrol sniffer and an alcoholic. It was never diagnosed, but it was pretty clear to most people who worked with him that he had fetal alcohol syndrome, that was there was potential difficulties that came from the petrol sniffing that his mother had done as well. He grew up in a volatile environment to a degree. Um, you know, he witnessed a lot of domestic violence. He witnessed a lot of violence full stop and moved around and was passed between families and he was a traumatised kid that turned into a difficult young man. Uh, he became quite violent to his girlfriend. He had those habits shown to him and then he enacted them as well. So he was a difficult young man, there's no doubt about that. Right, okay. And so what about Zachary Rolfe then? Did you get much of a sense of who he is? Yeah, um, you couldn't have got a person further away from Yundamu or even from Alice Springs, whose upbringing was so completely, vastly different than that of the people of whom he was policing. He um, grew up in, you know, the leafy, well-to-do suburbs of Canberra, went to the same private school as his father. His parents are both very well-respected and influential and privileged in Canberra society. Zachary, when he finished high school, he joined the Australian Army and was deployed to Afghanistan once. And then he joins the Northern Territory Police. And inside the Northern Territory Police Service, he's quite intent on joining the Tactical Response Unit, which is what sort of parachuted into almost military-type situations, siege situations, hostage situations, those kind of things. So he was working towards getting into that unit. So he was very ambitious, I'm sure he still is, and was clearly sort of aiming 
to be involved in high strategy, tactical kind of policing style, again, which was really obviously very different to community policing. Right. And that tension, Anna, between community policing and this kind of high strategy, tactical style of policing, that really became a key question in this trial, didn't it? Yeah, I think what the trial really shone a light on was two very different styles of policing. The community cops in Yundamu, their policing is built on trust and building relationships and quite time-consuming policing, very patient, a lot of talking, a lot of communication, as opposed to a different style of policing which seems to be quite focused on tactics, escalation and de-escalation, firearm tactics, all those kind of things. And I think that was really quite disparate in the trial that there were two very different types of policing happening in Northern Territory and probably indeed across the country. We'll be back after this. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive the Saturday paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. Anna, last week, Zachary Rolfe was found not guilty of the murder of Kumanjaya Walker. After that verdict was handed down in court, what kind of reaction did we see? So after verdict, uh, the different groups congregated on the steps of the Supreme Court to make statements. First of all, there was Zachary Rolfe himself. He made a statement, then his lawyer, then there was the police union. They followed their training and today we've seen justice prevail. Uh, it was a travesty that uh, Constable Rolfe was charged so quickly and without thorough investigation. We'll have more to say about that. And eventually uh, the prosecution came out, the lawyers, and they made a statement, and then finally the Walpuri mob. Today's not a very... It's not a really happy day for us. It's another sad day. Senior Walpuri man Ned Hartgraves, he had been present every day at the trial in a wheelchair, and he spoke quite fiercely and intensely. I just say, when? We are going to get justice. When? One of the things that he said was, enough is enough. No more guns in communities. Karinjala! More time! No guns! No guns! In the rural remote community. Enough is enough! And 
this has been repeated across the Northern Territory of cops shouldn't be wearing guns in communities. And so this is something that's going to be pushed for, I think, in the longer run. Um, I have done many interviews over the course of this story and spoken to different police, and there are police who won't take their gun out into the community, who just have it locked in a safe at the station, and if they feel the need arises, they'll get it. And then there are other police who won't go anywhere without their firearm, who see it as a key component of their policing. So there's this real discrepancy about how police might feel in a community, how safe they might feel, whether they've built enough relationships to consider themselves unthreatened or safe and not at risk as opposed to maybe a policeman who's fresh in a community who is even probably undergoing culture shock. So, again, even the relationship between police officers and their firearms varies from police officer. Yeah, I wanted to to ask you about, I suppose, after sitting through this trial, talking to these police officers who have, it sounds like, quite different views on whether or not they should be armed in communities, where you've kind of landed on this question of the way that policing operates in First Nations communities, I suppose, particularly in the Northern Territory, and how, after all this time, you're thinking about that question. Yeah, so I haven't come to any concrete conclusions yet as to where my mind settles on this matter, in the sense that it's pretty clear from communities that they want police there. You know, every couple of years you'll have a call from a community saying, we need more police here, we need more help, we need more support. So from the community's perspective, they want police who they can build a rapport with and a relationship, one that's built on trust and communication. What I'm getting the impression they don't want is sort of drop-in, drop-out, fly-in, fly-out policing where the community doesn't know the officer, there hasn't been this rapport that's been built, an arrest target literally is just an arrest target as opposed to a human that is understood in their in their full humanity. So that's, they're the impressions that I'm gathering of what a remote community wants from their police service. Mm. And does it seem at all to you that this trial is going to have an impact on policing in Australia and on the record of, of black deaths in custody? Well, it's, it's hugely significant in the sense that it's the first murder charges that have been laid against a police officer for 40-odd years. But the divisions and the disparity between the two parties is just so vast. The gulf is so big. You have the Walpree mob who have really battled this through to the trial with real dignity. They haven't had enormous lobby groups of unions and stuff like that behind them. They had great hope for a guilty verdict, which would be really historical and I think for them clearly is important. Zachary Rolfe and the police unions who've supported him almost in a one-eyed way, have this 
absolute conviction that it was a miscarriage of justice, that he was investigated and charged. They're adamant that it was a political charge, that it was done to appease the Black Lives Matter movement. And it just struck me that it was a shame that there was so much hostility, this idea that these things should not be scrutinised publicly, that officers don't have to be answerable to these kind of incidents. And obviously their occupation is high risk, there's no doubt about that, but accountability is incredibly important. You know, it's been, it's been an absolute tragedy and it would be really, really something for change to come out of it. Hmm. And I imagine it's going to be a difficult time for Yundamu going forward now. Yeah, I think it's going to be, it's going to be incredibly hard for the people of Yundamu to find that trust again. And as a result, it's going to be incredibly hard for the community police of Yundamu to regain that trust. Anna, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ruby. Anna Crean's story about this trial will be published in an upcoming issue of The Monthly. Mahler's music embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic Song of the Earth with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti and internationally acclaimed opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12. Book now at aco.com.au. Also in the news today... A targeted attack has rocked Ukraine's capital, Kiev, with a Russian bombardment hitting residential buildings and a metro station. At least five people were killed in the attack, prompting the city to impose a 35-hour curfew. And New South Wales Health has confirmed a seventh case of Japanese encephalitis in a woman aged in her 40s in the Riverina region. Japanese encephalitis is spread by mosquitoes and can infect animals and humans. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.